welcome back to the Wild Plant Culture Podcast, where we connect people and plants. Today's interview is with Dale Hendricks, plant grower down in southeastern Pennsylvania. He grows a lot of really cool native woodland species, medicinals, edibles, in a style all of his own, and he connects the dots to the wider picture. So today we get into permaculture, regenerative practices, food systems, and connecting that to human health and the health of the planet. Wild Plant Culture, in addition to being a podcast, is also my blog page. I've got a bunch of articles about wild plants, native plants, wild edibles. Check it out at wildplantculture.com. We also have a Facebook page. Sorry that it's on Facebook, but hey, I've got a flip phone. I don't have access to Instagram or whatever the kids are using these days. So there it is. Check it out if you want to join in on the conversation. And as always, this podcast is brought to you by Wild Ridge Plants, growers and stewards of native plants. If you want to check out more about Dale and Greenlight Plants, you can look at greenlightplants.com and in the show notes at wildplantculture.com I will try to include a couple extra links to cool stuff Dale has talked about. The music at the beginning comes from my little lo-fi music factory here. It's a bit of slide guitar. Hope you enjoyed it and I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dale Hendricks. So when I asked you to do the podcast and you took a look at it and you noticed the first guest was Leslie Sauer, Mm. you said you guys have some connection. And Leslie, I have some connection too. I basically read her book and decided, okay, I know what I'm going to do with my life. So what's your Leslie Sauer connection? Well, it's real interesting. So by the time I heard of Andropogon Associates, I was maybe early 30s and I'd been managing greenhouses for a while, but I was a young father about 85 roughly and I was just trying to figure out what was next and uh, I read an article about Andropogon Associates and their work at DuPont using native plants and restoration as a landscape tool and a restoration tool and just blew my mind so I called up their office and talked to Carol uh, Franklin and said, I bet no one grows the grass your landscape architecture firm is named after. She said, yeah, nobody does. It's crazy. I said, well, I'll grow a bunch. (laughs) So Carol Franklin came out, and uh, so Carol and Leslie were the very two female powers of Andropogon Associates. And, um, you know, she was just super excited. By the time she actually came out, I cooked up a couple plug packs of what we now call little blue stem or schizocerium scoparium. Basically, I was managing greenhouses for other people, and I just took a big order from Andropogon Associates. They said they needed a bunch, so I took an order for five or 8,000 of these plugs and grew them, and my boss was a little mad. There I was an hour from headquarters just taking orders for plants that weren't officially on our list to grow that no one else knew anything about. Mm-hmm. But I was like intrigued, thought, wow, people really want these cool native plants. And it just pulled at my heartstrings. I was a guy who always liked the outdoors and nature and never really paid attention to what was there and indigenous. 
So within a year or two, um, their faith in me and willingness to let me grow plants for them was a lot of what gave me the courage to help to start North Creek Nurseries, to co-start it, which we did in 88. So it wasn't that I just made all this up, but I got different signs from God. <laughs> and one of those signs from God was Andropogan Associates' real interest in having someone grow more natives. Yeah. So Leslie was there from the beginning. I met Carol first. It hardly matters. The whole gang were great and supportive. So you literally just said, there's this grass, went about finding seed and just grew it up five to 8,000 of them right off the bat for them, just like that. Well, um, I remember when I took that order, it was for the Richmond Battlefield Park. I think what I did is I dug them out of a, a field that was going to be turned into condos, mm -hmm. if I recall. Gotcha. I just kind of went out there and thought, no one's using these, oh. and they're going to plow them all up. <laughs> and I, I did them by division, yeah. uh, not really knowing how to grow it so well yet. Mm -hmm. Divisions are easier than, yeah. than seed when you're brand new at things. Um, so, But yeah, so that was a real supportive big fork in the road for me. Yeah. Yeah, what a great way to get started. Well, they weren't the only influence. You know, when we started North Creek, and still to this day at North Creek, they grow natives and cultivars, mm -hmm. you know, cultivated varieties of natives, as well as well-behaved exotic plants from around the world. Yeah. So I also had real good contacts in, you might call it high horticulture. So I got cool new varieties of other perennials and had... Uh, influential customers, which was um, also a big part of the mix. Um, but what Leslie and Andrew Pogon kept doing for me is back in the day, we were growing Miscanthus, and it was just getting known that it was weedy and uh, getting invasive. Mm -hmm. And the same with Lithrum. We used to grow different cultivars from cuttings with the idea that the cuttings were, cutting varieties were not fertile. But Sure enough, it was found out that they were fertile. So we used to sell a lot of both of those plants, for examples. But when the folks at Andropogon said, geez, these are really invasive, uh, with some reluctance, we gave them up. So again, it was a way we provided some leadership. Uh, so was that, or were you already North Creek at that time? Or is this early on, earlier on in your career when you kind of started pulling towards natives and getting influenced by Andrew Pogon and so on? Well, I was managing for an outfit called Greenleaf Enterprises in Kennett Square when I first met the Andrew Pogonites. And by 88, um, business partner Steve, Steve Castorani and I started North Creek nearby in Landenburg. Mm -hmm. So uh, in the early days at North Creek, yes, we were growing both those exotic yeah. plants, but we I would say roughly gave them up by 9091 because we were getting beaten over the head by <laughs> Leslie and the gang there. So I don't know North Creek's operations intimately. I definitely have bought plugs from them for various jobs and have high regard for their catalog and design ethos and all that. But when I came out here the first time, I saw what I think is very different nursery philosophy in operation. And 
it's fairly early on for me in terms of growing stuff and I definitely walked away from about an hour here with my eyes majorly opened I feel like you grow in a way that is more close to how the plants would grow in the wild and I'm curious um what's your nursery philosophy what are you working on here Dale well it's constantly changing and evolving, but basically I wanted to grow plants in ways that one could actually drink the runoff from <laughs> the nursery area, little details like that. So I wanted to be um, organic. And also, I'd kind of been there, done that on mm -hmm. high-tech greenhouses. You had to worry about them all winter. So I just do minimal season extension by having, let's say, an unheated greenhouse, and I'll have a tent inside that to kind of make a poor man's zone eight without fossil fuel heat or moving parts to break down. So I didn't want to have to uh, have seven-day-a-week, 24-hour worry about technology, nor did I want the uh, utility bills for that. So I think we can grow outdoors organically and grow high quality plants just you won't have them all the time you just got to flow with the seasons and extend them on both ends a little bit and there's a lot of ways to do that so yeah I just um, loved growing plants so much when I uh, turned my half of North Creek over to my business partner Steve in early 09 I just went real small organic at home and added a lot more edibles and uh, different permaculture type ideas were affecting what I grew and how I gardened at that time too. There's a scale difference there too. <laughs> very, very much. Um, I did this big change when I was a, a child of 56 and I, uh, I think it's really helped my health to do a lot of physical work outside yeah. and I really enjoy I'm kind of this working class guy I like to get things done so I I really enjoy the physical acts of collecting seeds sowing seed you know all those things dividing plants and whatnot so I've really enjoyed uh, that activity of a, a smaller nursery but I've also you know taught a lot of people and mentored a lot of young helpers here so that's also been really really fun and encouraging yeah that's a different type of scale too is being able to have scale by passing on what you're doing to other people who will also do something that's based on it instead of just trying to uh you know grow the whatever it is million units <laughs> here yeah i mean you know, North Creek really grew into a very um, successful and good-sized business. But yeah. when it does that, it takes a lot of attention away from individual people and relationships. So now I have the bandwidth, as they say, to really teach young people working for me here and work with them and learn from them too i always say it's a two-way street you just don't come here to learn from the master but you know everyone has little tricks and creative yeah, things to help out but i've enjoyed that more retail level process uh as far as work here at the at the nursery and i call it hippie homestead too so we do a lot of rewilding and food forest and things here at, at home 
what does rewilding mean to you? There's so many different rewildings. I feel like they're all interconnected, but there's rewilding like, you know, introducing megafauna back to the North American continent. And then there's sort of personal rewilding by, you know, not eating donuts or something like that. (laughs) You know, there's just a lot of variations. I use the word all the time, but I'm just curious where you're coming from with it. Sure. Um, I would say, to me, rewilding, when we're talking about the landscape anyway, is subtly, gently adding species and doing gentle edits on the landscape. Mm -hmm. Let's say here we have 12 acres that used to be uh, an overgrazed farm, and it was like abandoned 60, 65 years ago. So it's an early to mid-succession, and we have some nice, cool plants and plenty of weedy, invasive-type plants. So what I'm doing with rewilding here is adding species. Let's say like I collect a lot of seeds of ramps and I've been scattering them since the fall of 09. So now I have ramp patches out here that look like they were born here, but there was none here. So you can, if you know when to collect the seed, you know the right habitat the plant wants to grow in, often scattering seed is a great rewilding technique. But there's other things we've done where down in the woods we have a lot of multiflora rose that's hard to control and I'm not so inclined to be at war with it but so I'm adding other weedy native species instead hoping in time they'll compete so we've added a lot of ostrich fern in different places so uh, you can add and you can subtract as you edit so I have a naturally occurring pawpaw patch so bit by bit I've cleared out other competing things to let the little pawpaw runners run around the edges so there's many little techniques of rewilding which you can do with mushroom spawn you can you know but when i talk about plant rewilding it's generally scattering seed clearing things so plants can continue to run vegetatively like my sassafras patch for example uh and pawpaw patches so there's a lot of it's really a a huge thrill like i can't wait till next april because we've been scattering mertensia the virginia bluebell seeds only since 014. so they bloomed in their fourth year a little bit they bloomed a lot last year so this coming spring i'm going to have thousands of mertensia and again none of those weren't here at all so what happens when we farm for 200 years on a place is the seed bank gets run down. So another way to look at the rewilding is gently adding and tweaking the seed bank in a productive direction that adds beauty and species. I would say one of the most exciting things you shared with me was that story about wild leeks and bluebells and coming out here. I guess we were out here in the spring after going to uh, Shanks Ferry and, and we saw some of that. And you have this sort of like post-agricultural stream corridor, you know, a little slope down to a little stream, which is so familiar, you know, so familiar from the Central Jersey Piedmont where I worked and from so many other places, except it's carpeted with ramps and increasingly with bluebells. And it's true, they look like they belong, which they do, except the ramp seeds are these little black, shiny kind of gravity dispersed, you know, they're not going to blow on the wind or be eaten by a duck or whatever. And all of a sudden there's this great role for people. Like we can pick these in one place. They're not crossing route one anytime soon on their own. Right. I mean, maybe in a good windstorm if you got really lucky, but you can bring thousands of seeds and put them here. And sometimes, you know, I feel like we think of these woodlanders as being so, 
precious and conservative, and they're only going to exist in this habitat that's never been touched by man. But here you are with your kind of scrappy multiflora rose, you know, no offense, but stream corridor, right? Mm-hmm. With a long land use history legacy, and it's filled with ramps, and they're beautiful, and it's food. It's really good food. Yeah, and uh, my uh, good buddy Zach Elfers has helped me. He's done some of the planning uh, where we've also planted Pacera, or Sinise- mm-hmm. it used to be called Senecia yeah. aureus. Uh, golden groundsel and other things. Uh, he's done some of the planting of the ostrich ferns. And also, uh, he's gotten bur oak and other things going in areas where we're nice. battling the most aggressive vines by doing some, uh, some intentional burning. So he's been a great help in these rewilding efforts. And uh, we shouldn't forget that scattering seeds for trees works just as well. And we've been doing that, so we've been adding oaks pawpaws and other things nice so you've been gathering them and tossing them out on the landscape as is and then seeing them recruit and you know a year or two later or you digging little holes or what's your method for a big seed like a pawpaw or an acorn or something like that well i just have enough things to do basically with pawpaws i i collect a lot uh, for seed that i i grow them here so a few small rotten ones I'll throw out in odd corners. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I just throw yeah. small little pawpaws around without making a lot of effort. Uh, but you'll see it's kind of nice that everywhere we have these weeds. Oh, interesting weed. <laughs> so we have productive weed patches, yeah. you might say. It's, it's a different picture of what a human being can be than just a sort of negative actor all the time on the, on the landscape. Yeah, and that's what's so counterintuitive about a lot of permaculture and rewilding both is that the the mainstream environmental movement and a lot of people think oh well there's too many people we're we're just so destructive if we just lower our numbers everything will be fine i think a lot of us are now making the distinction thinking that it's not so much how many of us but it's way more important I feel uh, how we live that we can be restorative we can be adding species we can be regenerative of not just plant species but animal species ecosystems soil carbon and clean water so uh, we can do a lot better than doing no harm so this is from a guy who you know was steeped in the sustainability movements for the last 20 years uh, but Again, sustainability is a, a low uh, um, a low goal, let's say, compared to the fact that we can be really positive actors in ecosystems. And a lot of this we really um, can copy a lot of indigenous systems around the world where they manage and harvest uh, carefully, thoughtfully in ways that multiply the resource. Uh, so we, we try to do that wherever we go to, to add rather than look ourselves as bad and just make our influence smaller. Our influence in, in the better way can, can be really positive. And uh, the work of Charles Eisenstein I like on this. You know, we can do a lot better than no harm. Yeah. So has all that put you in the direction of growing edible and... I don't know what kind of umbrella you put under over them, but sort of, you know, useful to the wild world, including humans, plants. 
Sure. It, I'd like to take that in a broad context, right? So here was a guy who started working in greenhouses in 75. So first it was house plants, then it was perennials, and then gradually I learned, oh, there's indigenous perennials in plants. <laughs> Interesting. And then we started North Creek, you know, 13 years after I got into horticulture, paying more attention to the beginning native plant movement. But we were always happy to be cheerleaders for natives, but I remember in some of my earliest discussions, I was always careful to say that I was a native plant enthusiast, not a native plant fundamentalist, meaning that uh, we want to add more natives, but maybe the idea of fighting at invasives and being warlike in our attitude toward them could maybe do more harm than good. So let me just circle away from that part for a second. We'll loop back to there. Good. Yeah, I want to basically say that the native plant movement has been hugely successful in getting gardeners to realize that they're powerful, that they can be positive actors in the landscape beyond just beauty. Beauty is great, and it's an essential part, and we have to make beautiful gardens and appreciate beautiful plants. But now we've learned that we can help the birds and the butterflies and the bees and pollinators by our gardening choices, and this has been really, really good and empowering. But to circle back to your question, what, what I see is that, generally speaking, when people talk about landscape or landscape with natives, um, they're, they're not thinking about people and what they eat. They're generally just sure. thinking about, oh, I have a beautiful landscape that now is good for pollinators and critters of all kinds. And that's great, too. Us permaculture guys just kind of say, well, that's great, but maybe doesn't quite go far enough. You know, we're, we're looking to integrate in the landscape our food and human habitat and medicinals. So why go through all that effort to make a great landscape for all of creation, you might say, and say, oh, agriculture's over here in its own little ghetto in the open field, and you grow one plant at a time in annual systems. So we're looking to integrate with food forest or adding more perennials to the to the diet and to the landscape so um i've you know kind of gone down that rabbit hole of designing and maintaining multi-layered food forest kind of recognizing that a lot of plants in fact i would say almost all plants were evolved with their buddies (laughs) just like humans need, um, you know, we've learned about the microbiome in the last 15 years. Uh, Humans weren't evolved in sterile environment. So we've learned that naturally born uh, children uh, have better immune systems. And we've learned that young babies that breastfeed have way better stomachs and other other, um, immune and defense systems. And in the same way, plants need their symbiotic buddies so that we can grow mimics of natural systems in multi-layered food forests where you have, let's say, uh, pawpaws and other useful plants underneath that you might harvest that might just be good for the pollinators. So we can have multi-layered symbiotic designed ecosystems 
that are fun and beautiful too. And granted, you know, the place is, you know, has a few weeds around there. And <laughs> it's one of the dangers of the permaculture worldview is that you learn to look at plants and say, you know, yeah, I guess it's a weed, but it's doing some good. It's a nitrogen fixer. It's a pollinator. It's an herb. So it gives you a way wider look at plants and and their possible uses. So it was a long and rambling answer. I hope it was okay. You know, it's a n- new idea, but it's also a really old idea. It's probably more or less how we lived as a species for many tens of thousands of years, modifying our environment, creating richness in our habitats for foraging and hunting, using things like intentional seed dispersal or fire or some of the things you just talked about using here on the farm. Yeah, um, a lot of us, and when we were taught, you know, history and anthropology and whatnot, in our white European world here, we're coached to believe that the local natives, when the Europeans arrived, were just hunting and gathering, as if that kind of meant, oh, well, what was there, they'd find. <laughs> uh, but the more we learned, and there's iconic books, one's called Tending the Wild by M. Cat Anderson uh, and others, and a lot of information coming out now that these just weren't mm, random ecosystems that happened to be there when the pioneers, quote-unquote, came, <laughs> that they were deliberately managed diverse ecosystems that were... Um, coaxed into diverse productivity by really knowledgeable people and and techniques. So it is worth noting that there's a huge amount of marginal lands that are going to no use at all that can be rewilded. There's gorilla people who will take the Bradford or calorie pears in city in suburbia and quietly graft edible pears onto them. (laughs) So on and on we go. There's opportunities to have both human and animal habitat in urban, rural, and often in those productive edges uh, that's really worth exploring, you know. So it's it's fun to uh, look at the opportunities in the landscape. And it's another thing I've kind of gotten into is when you get into rewilding and permaculture and whatnot, it also changes your mind where maybe we could give an example from some of these Hershey trees we've been playing with, and we'll try to get back to that, is that falling down in our yards and fields and, and sides of the roads is hundreds and hundreds of tons of hickories and persimmons and pawpaws and a lot of edible plants are going to waste while people drive right by them complaining about the cost of food (laughs) so we're if you change your eyes and change your habits it's really an amazingly abundant world and what what we're coached to do in our society is look at how much money we have and get worried. You don't have enough money set aside for your retirement. So the messages we're given in our consumer society is be anxious. <laughs> it's just you. 
your security <clears throat> is largely uh, equals dollar bills. So those messages need to be looked at carefully because the truth is there's a huge amount of abundance out there. And it's not that I subsist on acorns. I don't. It's just that we're looking to add more um, tree and perennial crops, both grown on purpose in design systems and gleaned and uh, carefully um, curated from the wild landscape. Will you dig into that for me for a minute about the perennial and tree crops and annual crops? Um, you know, maybe maybe for somebody who's listening who hasn't gone down the permaculture path yet of thinking and, I, you know, one of the things that I've always enjoyed hearing from you ever since you first came in and gave a big presentation about biochar, which I also want to get to, um, <laughs> but let's not tangent in too many tangents all at once. Um, talk to me about perennial crops and things like carbon and water. Sure. Okay. Here's a sad bit of truth is, you know, why do they call a lot of the Near East, quote-unquote, the Fertile Crescent when basically Christ. it's desert, desert now, right? So the sad truth is that generally speaking when what we call civilization, which you might call plowing-based annual agriculture-based civilizations, when we plow, 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 what happens is it's sneaky, it's, it's subtle, but... Every time you make a, a field bare or you plow it, you oxidize the heck out of it. You use a lot, you introduce a lot of oxygen, and it's good stuff. What happens then is the bacteria, generally you disrupt a lot of funguses. They die uh, briefly, uh, but you stimulate a lot of bacteria, and they do their job, and they eat all that lovely, um, not all, but they eat a lot of uh, lovely dead organic matter, and it's some of that's called mineralization where when the bacteria die remember they don't last long their bodies are hugely nutritious for plants so that's a way of delivering um, fertility um, by that bacterial bloom that's all well and good and you get a jump and your annual crop does a little better uh, but every time you do that you uh, oxidize a huge amount of carbon so in time, if you plow, 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 and have bare fields, bare fields, especially if you use different sides, C-I-D-E-S, herbicides, insecticides, yada, yada, they all have a tendency to kill things. <laughs> and when we kill things, things smell bad. So nitrous oxide, methane, and carbon dioxide flow off our agricultural lands. So bit by bit, you go from lovely, deep, alluvial, high-carbon soils to low-carbon desert-type soil. So again, that's kind of what we've done in many, many agricultural areas. We've exhausted the soils. So um, we can grow food in a lot of different ways, and there's a whole wonderful movement of uh, regenerative agriculture, of holistic management, you know, carefully defined uh, grazing that uh, can be very excitedly restorative of soil carbon and ecosystem function. So it's not that we have to produce our food in such mm, 
destructive ways. <laughs> We've just been in the habit of doing it, mostly because there's always been more soil, or there's always been more fertilizer, <laughs> uh, or there's always been uh, that half a continent that, um, you know, or the continent like this one to go to. So that those options are kind of running out for our culture. So we need to find ways to grow, <clears throat> pardon me, a lot of food in ways that restore ecosystem function. And we can do that. Yeah, well said. You know, being a impatient, hot-headed person, <laughs> I get frustrated when I hear people talking about, you know, changing your light bulb to a more efficient light bulb or whatever, because for better or worse, you know, not only are there these really big changes that are kind of brewing behind the scenes in, in places like permaculture, you know, fundamental changes to food systems, but think of all the thousands of years of cultural norms we have and religions that we have that all sprout from the agricultural mentality. I mean, you know, not to offend half the planet or whatever, but <clears throat> all of our major monotheistic religions really come out of that Fertile Crescent agricultural moment. And many of the things that it means in terms of how human society and economy is structured and many of the ways that we probably reacted to those indigenous land management systems that might have really worked in North America or South America or the, all these other places uh, were also structured by all those agricultural norms and mindsets and even the idea of domestication and the idea of slavery and the idea of hierarchy and all these things, they kind of come out of that. So that's a bunch to push in your lap, Dale, but <laughs> it's more than just planting some trees, right? Sure. Um Many ways to go here. I would say <laughs> these landscapes in what we call the New World, let's say North and South America, were highly managed and now we're learning way more highly populated than we'd been led to believe. And so the new yes. archaeology is telling us this. But what it's also telling us is that we just didn't have the eyes to recognize their sophisticated land management. Number one, they didn't plow. <laughs> Number two, they didn't have things in straight rows. So we weren't recognizing what they did as agriculture, but it's astounding how productive uh, all the billions of passenger pigeons and buffalo and salmon runs mm -hmm. and eels and uh, shad and all these migratory flows of nutrients and food that um, had been here, that how astoundingly productive ecosystems can be if gently managed, if humans can step in and, and, and play their, their best selves role. Um, but to, to, to your other point, uh, the book Ishmael, is, uh, is hugely Always iconic heard good things about it. by I've Daniel Quinn. It. And uh, you know, what he uh, tells uh, through um, fiction is different cultures. So he called our culture, the white guy uh, consumer agricultural culture, the takers. So we take, 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 right? And we build our big populations and we start to you know exhaust the soils and 
suddenly we're looking uh, lustily at the um, indigenous folks in the next uh, country or continent over, and, you know, they've got time to have celebrations and dances and fun, and generally, it turns out, the anthropologists are telling us, the hunting and gathering or what we might more accurately call the horticultural civilization of planting, thinking, hunting, gathering, seeding cultures had they were healthier they had better teeth and bones they were taller and they had way more leisure time so the way we've made our culture around annual crops a is environmentally dangerous and b um humans need a lot more diversity in their diet than they're currently getting so there's a whole health issue (laughs) another rabbit hole we probably won't have time to go down but um the more we can have a lot more variety of nuts fruits funguses you name it the healthier we'll be not just from normal dietary health but immune and other measures of health um yeah, so much to go down there. Uh, lead, uh, lead me. My mind is going down <laughs> three different corridors at once because I want to pick up on that sort of domesticates versus wildlings nutritional theme. But then again, I feel like that's just going to take us someplace <laughs> f- far, far away. And I want to keep on what the, the heart of what you were talking about, about other ways of procuring food, other ways of managing or interacting with the landscape. And so in that regard, something that's related in there, that was, I think, the way that we first met is you came down and gave a presentation about biochar. And I was pretty riveted. And then I remember my boss being like, well, if that was true, all the charcoal companies would have figured it out already. Wow, that has tremendous faith in corporate America, but okay. Um, But leaving that aside, Tell me about biochar and how it fits into these systems potentially. Sure. So let's go back to where we're talking about the Fertile Crescent and how we inadvertently have oxidized a lot of the carbon from soils by plowing, tilling, and other techniques, right? So the carbon is the main ingredient in humus and in good soil that you can pick up and smell and see if it's dark you'll recognize it as high carbon soil. So your high carbon soil will have um, better water holding capacity, better nutrient holding capacity, better cation exchange capacity. All these good things are uh, delivered by humus in the soil, which is generally shorthand for carbon. So every soil test has SOC, soil organic carbon, as a part. So the higher the carbon, the better the soil, right? So it turns out, let's say if you have um, uh, dead roots from a cover crop or if you have uh, a half inch of compost, those are also highly carbonaceous materials that are good for your soil, quote unquote. You add those things or have them in your soil and those form of carbons are great. They add energy and some nutrients, but they kind of break down over time. So most of the additives we'd add by hand to soil are what they call labile carbon. That's short-term carbon. That's great, but you plow it a few times, uh, (laughs) a year or two goes by, and most of that carbon's back in the atmosphere. It turns out that 
there's many, many carbon cycles with soils and plants. So we talk about the living carbon cycle, the dead carbon cycle, which we touched on some of, and the, the very dead carbon cycle. So let's back up. So when I do the biochar talks, it's fun and interesting. And again, biochar is just kind of a word that soil scientists recently gave to charcoal that's in soil or charcoals that are made to go into soil. So we don't have to overthink this. This is charcoal we've known and used for 100,000 years. Um, so, but I want to back up the different forms of carbon because it's important. So we talked a little bit about how dead carbons are great. They're important and they cycle fairly quickly through the soil and plants, right? And our plants make part of them. But there's something called the liquid carbon pathway that a woman in Australia, Dr. Christine Jones, coined this term. So think of the trees or grasses uh, sucking up CO2 from the atmosphere, which they do, and they combine with water. They crack the water with photons and make sugars out of CO2 and water, right? So the sugars are their basic blood system of plants and the building blocks. So some becomes leaves, some becomes stems, some becomes roots, some becomes more or less the plant's blood system, right? So it turns out 85 or 95 percent, or 85 to 90 percent of all plants terrestrial are mycorrhizal, right? So they have close relationships with funguses, which help them out hugely in, in the roots. So most plants don't, quote-unquote, feed themselves <laughs> so much as they're fed through their own microbiome. So a lot of them are through these mycorrhizal relationships. Others are with different friendly bacterial relationships. So the plants make these sugars, and a lot goes to their bones and teeth and roots and whatnot. Uh, teeth, that's funny. Plants don't have them. But anyway, uh, but because the mycorrhizal fungus in particular, but also associated bacteria, are either entirely or largely dependent on the plant's roots exuding. So up to 25%, sometimes a higher percent, of the total productivity of a given plant is often given out as a sweat, as a sweet sugar exuded into the root zone. So then that gives energy to the funguses, the mycorrhizal fungus, let's say, then they can go and they can crack rocks. They can get nutrients that plants' roots can't get by themselves. They can get more water. And it gets even more fun. It turns out that the plants are able to communicate with the funguses, of course, more or less chemically asking for different things. So it's a mutualistic, lovely dance. But when you exude all that carbon through living systems, out through mycorrhiza and bacterial, that's called the humic pathway. So that makes long-chain complicated carbons that um, have a tendency to last a lot longer than the simple dead carbons we talked about before. So that's the humification pathway via the liquid carbon pathway. Nice. So that's the living uh, carbon cycle, one of several, of course. Uh, but if we... Put all that together. When I give the talks, you know, I illustrate the different ways ecosystems and humans together have made high carbon quality soils. We've gotten to several of those aspects now. The last part is, let's say we're in a perennial prairie and a fire comes along. So 
fire will um, uh, result in a lot of um, ash or charcoal. So like everything else, fire is not a simple thing. <laughs> Certainly it can be hugely destructive, especially if you have way, way too much fuel stacked up because you've suppressed fire for a long time. But if you have a healthy ecosystem, let's say a prairie that might want or take a fire every one, two, three, five years, whatever, and you burn it, quote unquote, often a lot of what's left is black, is a, is a coating of black. So that's a cool fire that is not nearly as destructive as let's say one out west where all this wood is there and it makes a ferociously hot fire and it burns everything down to ash and sterilizes the first few inches of the soil and then you get a huge amount of erosion. So fire, like many things, can be good or bad, but if you burn it halfway is what it amounts to, you burn it from grass or wood into charcoal and that charcoal doesn't keep burning into ash, mm -hmm. then you're left with this long-term recalcitrant form of carbon or charcoal. So one of the reasons our prairie soils are still so productive, most of them are called mala soils, is that I think it was 44% or more, a lot, a huge portion of the carbon in a lot of the better prairie soils is pyrolytic carbon, i.e. it comes from fires. They can tell these things. That's why God invented chemists. But isn't it neat to know that that long-term carbon biochar is acting like glue? So this is one of the fun things about it is it's carbon that lasts many, many, many generations, you know, 500 to 10,000 or more years and you know sometimes way longer if that charcoal is in the soil it'll be there a long long time and it acts like other forms of carbon just way longer and more so because the this carbon has long-term structure and that's a habitat for micro critters and um, just a huge soil reef of habitat for uh, all manner of things in the soil. So I don't know how far and deep you want to go. I wanted to put the biochar in the soil carbon context. Yeah. I hope we did. So, and those prairie soils are some of our deepest soils, some of our most carbon-retentive soils, some of our most productive soils, and that whole prairie system is thought to be a human-driven or anthropogenic system. So those fires are often being set by native peoples who are driving this whole incredibly productive, beautiful, but also underground, something really interesting is going on. And that want, makes me just want to tie into the last bit about biochar that I wanted to get to, because this is one of the things that you mentioned early on that I found so intriguing, and I've done you know more reading about it since, but the idea of the terra preta down in the Amazon and how that fueled sort of early concepts, not early, but you know, the last, whatever, decade or two of thinking about biochar. So can you give me that story real quick? And then, oh, can you tell me the recipe for terra preta while you're at it? <laughs> uh, oh, interesting. Let's get into that mystery a little bit. <laughs> well, when I give the biochar talk, again, I'm trying to paint a broader carbon cycle picture, yeah. but I, I give uh, these two examples. So one we just kind of briefly walked through was the Iowa Prairie example of how 
both humans setting those fires on purpose to maybe do buffalo hunting or whatnot, uh, and or natural systems, lightning by themselves, have created really beautiful soils, right? So think of the legacy we're leaving, <laughs> and uh, think of the legacy other generations have left on the planet. So it's something to think about. But the other part of the origin story of biochar is, is tied to something called terra preta. So maybe 30 years ago, archaeologists were down in the Amazon basin, and it seems like a lot of the old village sites had great black soil, which they call terra preta, means black earth in Portuguese. So what's interesting is it's well known that the soils in most all the, the global south, uh, particularly in tropical areas everywhere, uh, are generally super low carbon, uh, low pH, uh, hardly any organic matter, and are generally known as lousy. So why these old village sites where no one had lived for five, six, seven hundred years um, had hugely black fertile soils was a puzzle. So basically they took them apart, they pulled the soil scientists in, and they said, well, the reason is they got this charcoal that acts like a glue that's holding all this fertility and other forms of organic matter, holding water and nutrients, that these were indeed man-made soils. So this is kind of what led to them naming biochar as a certain thing. It's just soil scientists like their own terms. But it's it ties back to our talk about anthropology, where the first, the very first explorer, I think it's Oriala, Oriana, yeah. uh, European that, that explored the whole Amazon from west to east, his account was humongous big villages, city after city, lots of people, lots of people. But by 50, 70, 80 years later, when someone came to really check this out and sent a, a, a historian, there was hardly evidence, any evidence of, of this left. There was a few scattered savages. And we have to remember that that made us feel good that we could take over this area <laughs> because it was Not largely used un, by anybody unpeopled. But it turns out what was likely to happen is 90, 95 or more percent of those people were wiped out quickly um, by the European diseases, which a lot of the um, uh, uh, North and South Americans had no exposure to. And Oftentimes is, the diseases would make it to the interior before, you know, explorers or conquistadors or whatever even got there. Yeah, so there's more and more evidence that the, that early explorer's account was right, that there's roads and earthworks and all manner of things, and these terra preta soils. So basically, the argument had been by normal historians that I was raised with, oh, well, the soils are way too lousy. There could never have been that many people. They could have never fed them on these lousy soils. Now we're finding hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of acres of terra preta. And incidentally, if you go to Brazil today and say, I want to buy a farm, if it's on terra preta soil, it'll cost you five times as much oh, per wow. acre now. That's interesting. So there's value there, even in our money system. <laughs> but um, having said that, it turns out that they might have intentionally made these soils to feed themselves, to have intensive agriculture, maybe to have sweeter-smelling latrines. 
uh, or sweeter-smelling piles of fish bones. Uh, so as we know that charcoal biochar is the best absorber of odors, and when it absorbs odors like ammonia, think, think of your chicken house, let's say, um, that is a nutrient it holds, and it holds it in a way that makes, that makes it more easily plant available later. So the charcoal doesn't chelate, it doesn't lock things up, it holds it in a form that plays nice with plants. So that's another positive thing about the, the char. So how do you integrate biochar here on the hippie homestead? <laughs> well, let's just say we have some firewood, right? So we took down a cherry tree or two, or one fell down recently. So basically, I've got a wood stove, and a lot of the fatter, thicker wood um, we use for firewood. And I get a little char out of the wood stove. Uh, okay, we can talk about that but basically we'll intentionally make biochar different low-tech ways with piles of sticks and limbs maybe two inches uh, or less across so you can again there's a lot of different techniques but just think of it as the first half of the fire right the first half is a flame that flame is burning the wood into coal and then if you're looking at a campfire the fire has all these things going on at once of course so in the center of the fire the oldest parts are the glowing coals that are burning slower and hotter those coals are being slowly burned to ash so there's just a zillion different ways to optimize for the first half of the fire and minimize the second half in the simplest terms nice so with you talking about the soil biome and plants feeding their soil biome and briefly mentioning the human microbiome, all of our internal bacteria, it gets me to thinking, you know, if the soil biome is so compromised by annual agriculture and the things that we grow and the systems that we put in place to create our sort of supermarket foods and the human biome is maybe sort of the same thing as the soil biome, but for human beings. So I think of our human microbiome as almost like a soil inside because some of the same processes are happening, right? We're hosting beneficial bacteria. They're breaking down sort of these macro units of inputs into smaller units of minerals and, and nutrients that we can then utilize, just like fungi and bacteria are doing for plants in the soil. We're feeding our internal soil. And sometimes you even hear that colloquially, right? Like, mm-hmm. oh, I, I don't know, soiled my pants or whatever. Like, <laughs> there is some notion that, that you know, our internal process is, is similar to soil in some way. So if it's negatively affecting our planet's soils to grow annual crops in the way that we do, what is it doing for human health? What is it doing for our own internal biome and for our own need for nutrition and minerals and so on to not have access to a wild ecosystem worth of plant foods, but instead this sort of narrow diet? Gee whiz, that's that's a whole podcast right there. Let me just try to take a few bites, so to speak, of this. Uh, One thing is that most people know who are health conscious at all is that since roughly after the Second World War, a lot of our vegetables and milk and meats uh, have a lot less nutrients in them, a lot less calcium and minerals and uh, vitamin C and whatnot that they did 
often half as much, and sometimes it's way less. So number one, because of what we walk through with soils, we've kind of impoverished our soils greatly. And so the plants growing in them uh, are greatly impoverished in healthy, what are called secondary metabolites, those terpenes, those carotenoids, uh, the things that give foods flavor and that also are healthier uh, plant defense compounds that are often very helpful for humans. So you need a super healthy plant to deliver those things. So um, super healthy plants, again, come from a healthy, diverse microbiome. So we, we have to remember that, A, we've bred plants for bigness <laughs> and kind of bland taste. So we've inadvertently selected for less nutrient-dense, shall we say, less um, nutritious uh, foods. But B, we've inadvertently, we're just learning a lot about this, uh, impoverished our soils and therefore stacking the deck about delivering uh, less and less nutritious produce. So number one, the more diversity we have in our diets, the better we are because we'll need certain um, bacteria and whatnot to digest different things. So, uh, But the other thing to know is that in almost all our food is our friend glyphosate, the active ingredient in Roundup, which is a master chelator. It is a antibiotic, was patented as an antibiotic for a while. So we're in a very, in a position where we have to be very defensive <laughs> about our microbiome. Uh, and in a way, our microbiomes are really being assaulted. Uh, we could go down that rabbit hole too a little bit, uh, but these chemicals are very subtle and they're everywhere. So the more we can lower our exposure to those in particular, the more of a robust microbiome we have uh, because we're not inadvertently feeding it with antibiotics all the time. So that's one rabbit hole, but the other is that let's say if you get a wild ramp and uh, it'll have maybe 10 to 50 times more phytonutrients in it more subtle plant chemicals than a commercial onion let's say the same family but there's a lot of nutrient density and other uh, trace element goodies in uh, wilder foods so the more we can incorporate some of them I know there's billions of us. I know we can't all scrounge and rewild, but little bits as we can uh, are very healthy. Tell me about the Hershey Nursery. So I went to this great <laughs> presentation by our mutual friend, Max Paschal, a year or two ago at the Northern Nut Growers meeting. And I was just wrapped looking at his pictures on the screen of these enormous hickory nuts. And anyway, I don't want to give too much of the goodies away, but tell me the story behind the Hershey Nursery. Sure. Very interesting. Okay. So a guy named John Hershey lived from like 1898 to 1967, roughly. And uh, during the Dust Bowl time, he worked for the feds, for the USDA I think before it was a USDA. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, his job during the Dust Bowl was to convince farmers to not plow as much everywhere, you know, to um, help the Dust Bowl out, but also to incorporate more trees in poor and marginal soils. 
So he got sidetracked down this where his job was to offer good money to poor farmers during the Depression. I want to get your best blueberries, your best persimmons, your most productive uh, mulberries and um, uh, honey locust trees and all these trees. So what he got to assemble was this huge collection of about three-quarters natives, incidentally, but great, great, great trees with the idea that look at how most of our meat proteins raise now, right? So you've got your chickens that are in a chicken prison and they're being fed gruel, right? Uh, So his chickens, pigs, and cows grazed out between rows of trees. So in the early summer, they had... um, um, American plums, different kinds of berries, then they had mulberries, uh, then they had uh, persimmons and honey locusts and all manner of nuts. So you can plan and uh, grow a hugely productive tree-based ecosystem in rows. So now we might call what he did agroforestry or to some extent um, row cropping. Uh, so sadly, you know, he died in 67. He didn't quite get his place um, preserved. And his two different properties where he grew trees were kind of developed. Roads were put in, houses and all. But all this time later, what's really intriguing is a fair amount of the trees are left in the margins. So Max Pascal was the one who uh, showed Zach Elfers and I and others he said, hey, I know where those trees are. We read about this in the February of 16 Permaculture Design Magazine, and Max uh, took us out. So we were just wrapped when we found all these trees. It's really neat to see grafted trees. You can tell that by how their bark looks. Uh, you have one kind of bark and then a straight line and uh-huh. another kind of bark. It's very easy to see once you tune your eyes in. But we've gotten to a give many many tours of these trees to people interested in productive agro ecosystems b we've got to save a lot of seeds give them to our buddies we were just talking this morning our buddies down the road at brewers hideaway farm we gave their pigs whole gangs of these honey locusts which are big string beans on trees you might say almost two feet long dark brown leathery pods of big string beans it's a legume family tree uh and they went through the pigs and you have a lot of honey locusts popping up in their pastures from these so it's really fun so we're a uh, uh spreading the word so downing town which is the town john hershey was from uh here in eastern pa um um, I lost my train of thought. Downingtown, Hershey. Well, if I can jump in yeah, for go a ahead. sec, then, jump in because I don't know exactly where your train was headed, but <laughs> Off I, I have a real soft spot in my heart for persimmons. Uh, and one of the things that I remember from Max's presentation when he was saying that he brought out a friend who was probably one of these real persimmon connoisseur kind of people. You might know a couple people like that, mm-hmm. the kind of pawpaw persimmon set. And he said, you know, this is the best persimmon I ever had or something like that. I was like, wow. Yeah. So, so oh, go ahead. Hershey was combing the South for like the very best tree crops and then came up and was growing them up here 
in Pennsylvania, and you guys found the traces of the nursery, including like these phenomenal nuts and fruits and so on, and like two foot long honey locust pods and what have you. I so where I'm leaning is like I want details. <laughs> to tell tell me about um, tell me about some of these plants. Sure, I'll let's just back up a tiny bit yeah. first. So uh, most permaculturalists are taught in their courses that. A book called Tree Crops, A Permanent mm-hmm. Agriculture, yeah. is really kind of required reading. So the later versions of it in 53 or 55, uh, 1953 or 5, roughly, uh, the book was by J. Russell Smith. And if you look around, it's a free download on the Internet. Yeah. Anyway, in that book, in the later editions in particular, he praised John Hershey many times about the different plants he had because he had a big, not only a farm demonstrating all this, but he had a nursery where he was selecting and propagating and selling these trees all over the place. So a very influential thing. So, okay, some of these trees, let's say there's groves of honey locusts still left out there in suburbia. And the honey locust is a common street tree. If you look it up, it's called gladista. It looks a lot like a black locust, like this fine-leafed legume, like a mimosa, that whole group of very well-known trees. It has very light shade. So what's nice about that is there's groves of honey locusts that uh, the grazing underneath them is every bit as good as it would be out in full sun. In other words, the tree... Uh, only gives such light shade that the productivity is good underneath. It's not well known that when you hit about 100 Fahrenheit, it's so hot, a lot of photosynthesis shuts down. And uh, so what you get is really good grazing productivity underneath, light shade for comfort for the animals, for carbon sequestration, whatever. And you also get a, a... big productive raining down of these pods which are high in sugars and protein um now they're they're leathery so they might not be the best for chickens or humans but they're perfectly wonderful for pigs and cows and um so hershey was a big proponent of grafting of having selected trees so there's at least three cultivars of honey locusts let's say so to back up, the wild honey locusts have huge, rapacious, unbelievably sharp thorns. Check it out. They will gore you. They are unbelievable. So all of these plants, all of these trees that are left after all these years are thornless. So they're grafted, selected for A, big, sweet pods, B, to be thornless. Uh, so all that is left as a as a living example of what's possible with selected improved trees. So the persimmons are almost all American persimmon, uh, again, selected to bear over a long period. So by the last week of August, the persimmons are starting to fall, and it's now whatever, 25 or 6 November. I'd say the persimmons gave us two and a half months anyway. They were quite active till early November. Maybe the second week in November, I had somebody there and we got some fairly recently. So they were selected to have one tree and another and another, same with the mulberries. So you always have something. So you have happy farm animals in the shade, eating a diverse diet. You've got a 
soil and carbon friendly landscape. You've got coolness, diversity, firewood, biochar wood, whatever. So setting up these productive systems is exciting. And um, in some of the articles, and maybe you can link if you do show notes or whatever. Sure, yeah. um, there's a couple articles about these, but there's another farm in uh, Lancaster County called Rising Locust Farm. They're also planting lots of trees. They're also on the Hershey uh, um, path. So a lot of farmers of all kinds and people looking to do restoration are doing maybe restorative agro-ecosystems using a lot of these Hershey trees, which were, I remember that train of thought I abandoned minutes ago. <laughs> so we're training people. We've reconstituted the uh, tree commission in Downingtown to protect some of these trees. Nice. Uh, we're multiplying them from both seed and from um, uh, uh, cuttings and grafting. So we have seven varieties of these persimmons just getting going. And again, uh, Zach Elfers has something called Nomad Seed. He's getting uh, cooking up a nursery. Max Pascal also is uh, propagating a lot of these. So there's a lot of energy around these trees and what they represent and what's possible in productive, tweaked by human ecosystems. So I don't know how much further you want to go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah, I know. Just the very last thing that that I remember from Max's presentation that I felt like really brought it all together is saying, you know, being that all these were selections from, say, the rural South, there's a pretty decent chance that a fair amount of them may have been originally Native American selections that were around village sites or what have you that then people went out and found for Hershey. And so in some ways, you have this like unbroken lineage back to this other version of whatever you want to call it, ecoculture or agroforestry, or there's 10 million different sort of lousy names for this practice. But, and I thought, that's really cool. Well, uh, here we are at the kitchen table enjoying some hickory tea. Mm -hmm. Thanks, so, Dale. So, yeah, we Very got good. some shell barks, and Zach uh, brought, brought us some today that I cracked up uh, before Jared came. And basically, you just crack the hickories and put them in a pot of water and slow boil when you make a really delicious tea that the Cherokees used to use. So a lot of these um, trees were almost definitely remnants and grandchildren and great-grandchildren of selected American native uh, trees. So they were all known to occur a lot around village sites and whatnot. So again, it turns out the hunters and gatherers were more horticulturalists than we gave them credit for by burning this area, by scattering these seeds. Uh, by trading seeds, which they did all the time in their uh, potlatches and their cultures of generosity. So that's one reason the ecosystems were as productive as they were when the white folks came, is that they were, uh, they were curated and nurtured to be productive, which, again, is kind of some of the highest callings that we're, we're hoping to resonate with when we grow up. <laughs> Dale, I've got so many other things I'd like to talk about, but that's such a good ending. I feel like it really encapsulates what you're all about to me, which is very generous in sharing your knowledge, sharing what you've picked up along the path and involving younger people in the work that you do and passing things on. And um, 
really appreciate it. I really appreciate the time that you spent with me here today. And maybe I'll just say, to be continued. Thanks again, Jared. Happy to be with you. Take care, Dale.